All right, I got a fever, and the only prescription is talking about crazy shit from history. All right, here we go. I'm telling you, fellas, you're going to want that cowbell. I realized that the next show was due on Halloween, so I thought I would do something thematic. As I've mentioned a couple of times before, and you may or may not have guessed, I am Australian. This is where you see the work of my dad, is right here. He taught me to be one-on-one with the snake, to be at one with it, to feel it in my fingers. So we don't really do Halloween down under. Halloween is very much a Northern Hemisphere thing. I'm not knocking on Halloween. By all means, have a spooky harvest festival when it starts getting dark and cold, if that's your jam. You do you, boo. But that's very much a northern hemispherical thinking. In Australia, we have never seen the need to have a Halloween. Most of the country doesn't get a proper winter at any point. We don't have seasons as they exist in the northern hemisphere. And since most of the animals in this country are already trying to kill us, She's just trying to tag Steve-O on the face. I know you are, sweetheart. You're a beautiful snake. There isn't really a need to invent supernatural monsters. Australia is scary enough as it is. What's that? You've got a legend about people that turn into wolves when the moon is full? Allow me to introduce you to the Gimpy Gimpy Bush, a.k.a. the Suicide Plant, a.k.a. something that is actually real and actually exists and is actually called the Suicide Plant. So that's it. What, we some kind of suicide plant? Yeah, you thought it was just the animals in Australia that were deadly. Our plants are trying to kill you too. Gimpy Gimpy is a bush that looks kind of like poison ivy, except that it's covered in all these really small, tiny hairs. And these hairs are pretty much the same structure as glass. They act like a hypodermic needle. These little hairs contain poison. And they penetrate the skin like a hypodermic needle, and then they release a slow dose of this poison over the course of the next few years. Yes, years. The sting of the gimpy gimpy bush has been described by the botanist Maria Hurley as, and I'm quoting here, quote, like being burned by acid and electrocuted at the same time. So that's fun. The treatment for a sting from the gimpy gimpy bush is to immediately place the victim into an induced coma. Because there's a reason that this thing is called the suicide plant. People who are stung by it tend to kill themselves. It's that bad. And that's just a plant. That's a plant that we have here in Australia. I haven't even started in with the animals. Did you know that the platypus, yeah, you know, the platypus, the cute little guy, the otter with the duck bill, a male platypus has poison barbs which are coated in neurotoxin that directly stimulate the brain's pain center. So get This neurotoxin doesn't actually harm your body at all. It just kind of makes you feel like you're permanently on fire. And that's a platypus. That's that cute little guy. It gets exponentially worse from there. Don't even get me started on era kanji. That's something you can look up in your own time. So yeah, there is no real reason for Halloween down here. Being Australian is Halloween enough. That and 
down here it's just a bad time of year for costumed nonsense. People in the Antipodes, I want you to picture Halloween in your heads. Everything you do for Halloween, get that image in your head. The costume, the spooky decorations, the trick-or-treating, the parties, picture all of that. And now, imagine trying to do all of that when the temperature is still around 25 degrees at night which is 77 degrees if you're the only nation still using Fahrenheit. It doesn't get dark until about 9pm, and it is humid as Thailand all the time. Now, you might begin to appreciate why, despite the efforts of horny teenagers throughout time, why Halloween has never taken off in a significant way in Australia. It's just too damn hot. Ah, it's too hot today. And I'm a guy that likes heat. But that being said, I recognize that people do like their Halloween stuff. This is a festive time of year for a lot of people, so I try to keep up with the trends. So, all that being said, if everything goes to plan, then this show will be dropping on All Hallows' Eve. And in the spirit of the occasion, I thought that it was high time that we finally got around to talking about the Blood Countess, Elizabeth Bathory. So... For all of the people wondering when I'm going to be covering Elizabeth Bathory, the time has come. For everyone else, brace yourselves, because shit is about to go off the goddamn chain. Elizabeth Bathory is a name that pops up a lot in the month of October, and there's a good chance that you've heard that name without ever having heard the story behind it. And that story is absolutely batshit fucking insane, so of course I'm going to be covering this. This show has been in the chamber for a while now. I'm finally pulling the trigger. Oh, and I've never been one for content warnings. I tend to think that people need to grow the fuck up about art, but this is an exception. There's a huge content warning on this entire show, so if you're the squeamish type, you might want to punch out now. I'm not going to be as salacious as I possibly could, all things considered, But this is a show about Elizabeth Bathory, and there is a reason that she's known as the Blood Countess. It's gonna get messy. But if you're still with me, giddy up! Extibatori Erzbet, which is anglicized as Elizabeth Bathory, was born on August 7th, 1560, in Nyabator, in the Kingdom of Hungary. For anyone who's keeping score, 1560, this is the same year that the Geneva Bible is first published, the Golden Age of Piracy starts, and the first ever tulip is imported from Constantinople to the Netherlands, which is a backdoor pilot for a future show about Bitcoin, because all of history is interconnected, as we all know. Also, if you're scorekeeping, if you're doing your own research on this, as you should, good luck looking up the city of Nyerbator. That's a good old-fashioned Hungarian name if ever I've seen one, and I have never seen a nine-letter word have that much punctuation in it. The name Nyerbator has all of the punctuation. Every single possible punctuation mark is in that name. You think an umlaut is fancy? No, you haven't seen nothing yet. Why do you check out Nyerbator? That thing is covered in spikes. JB, how does your bit go? that Cyrillic languages are based on the noise you make when you watch a gruesome car crash? Nyebator! Ooh, 
Roberto. In case you're not familiar with the in-joke, the comedian Jacques Barrett does a bit about Cyrillic languages being like the noise you make when you watch a car crash. And he has a special coming out soon, and I'll plug it when he does. So uh, that should make us even, right, JB? Cool. Sorry, I got sidetracked there. But I should make the point before we move on, this is a very Slavic story. And Slavic contains some fucking tough languages. So for the most part, I'm not even going to bother with attempting correct pronunciation here. You're going to get me doing the best approximation of Slavic that I can manage, but you've been warned. I am also not apologizing for this. All Cyrillic languages are just a couple of Byzantine monks fucking with the future, so don't feel bad if the average human throat can't make that kind of noise. They knew what they were doing. Alright, where were we? Okay. It's August 1560, and Arzbet Batori has been born in Alphabet City in Hungary. This is at the absolute height of Hungarian power. This is their golden period. The famous Habsburg dynasty has taken power about a generation before this. Hungary is never going to be this big again. They are one of the world's major players. So if you were a Hungarian noble, this was the perfect time to be born. And it just so happened that Elizabeth Bathory was born very, very noble. Her father was a baron and her mother was a baroness, but a different kind of baroness than her father was a baron. So she's two different kinds of baron. There's a mathematician, a different kind of mathematician, and a statistician. And I'm using the term baron here because it's going to make life a whole lot easier moving forward. But the further east you go into Europe, the weirder their titles get. We're actually on the border of Transylvania for this story too, and they've got their own super weird shit going on. So I'm just going to say things like baron and count for convenience. You actually get things like voivodes and palatines, and they're technically not barons, but let's not get lost before we start, okay? So Elizabeth Bathory was born into a kind of privilege that we would find it difficult to comprehend in the 21st century. Her father was a baron, and her mother was independently a baroness, and they combined to create a super baron. Her uncle is a Transylvanian baron, another uncle is the king of Poland, Another uncle is the Grand Duke of Lithuania. Elizabeth Bathory has some of the bluest blood in the history of putting inbred people in charge of nations. Now, probably because of this blue blood and the crazy inbreeding associated with it, little Lizzie Bathory had a whole slew of health issues as a child. Her bloodline rules Eastern Europe at the time, but none of them were strong swimmers, if you catch my drift. So she was up against it from a young age, and her childhood health issues were made considerably worse on account of it being the 16th century, and medicine at that point was essentially just leeches and drowning people to get the ghosts out of their blood. So Elizabeth was a sickly child, partially because it wasn't a great time to be alive, even if you were super nobility, but also it's just generally not good for your genetics if your parents are first cousins which her parents were, because they were super nobility. The Bathory gene pool was more of a saucer than anything else. Among other health issues, Elizabeth Bathory was an epileptic. Remember, this is the late 1500s. As you can guess, not a great time to be an epileptic, and even worse to be a female epileptic. 
treatment for severe epilepsy in this period, if you were female, was basically, oh, well, the girl is obviously being seduced by Satan for her role in kicking us out of the Garden of Eden. We'd better beat her with a birch rod until the seizures stop. You have my word as a doctor. Obviously, I'm doing a bit there, but I'm not as far off as you might think. Epilepsy wasn't known as epilepsy back then. It was still called the falling sickness, which is technically correct, but I think it loses some of the nuance. I mean, anything is a falling sickness if it gets bad enough. Anyway, the agreed-upon medical treatment for falling sickness, if someone was having a violent seizure... 9 out of 10 doctors recommend that the best treatment would be to find someone who wasn't suffering from epilepsy, drain their blood, rub that blood on the lips of the person having the seizure, and then, when the seizure finally stopped, if the person that had the seizure could then eat the skull of a person who wasn't epileptic, that will probably cure the epilepsy. Or falling sickness. That bit I'm not making up. That's how they did it, because the past was fun. You cure epilepsy by eating someone who wasn't an epileptic. It's worth stowing that tidbit away in your mind, because the rest of this show is going to be about how Elizabeth Bathory is the origin for most of our stories about vampires, but the official medicine of the time, the accepted medical treatment, prescribed eating a peasant. Because history is wild and horrible. So this little anecdote might go some way to explaining how things turned out with Elizabeth Bathory later. Some way, not all the way. Not even most of the way, but at least some of the way. Because, if you'll recall from the top of the show, I said she was known as the Blood Countess. And you should be wondering what it is you have to do to get the title of Blood Countess in the 1500s when eating a person's skull was the equivalent of taking an aspirin. That's an exceptionally high bar. And the answer is that Elizabeth Bathory was an exceptionally fucked up person. At a very young age, Elizabeth began to show signs of unusual cruelty. And I think it behooves us to explore what unusual cruelty is in the context of this day and age. Because Elizabeth Bathory was a noblewoman from Hungary, but she's also in the same region as Wallachia and Transylvania, you know, the places where all of the vampire myths come from. This is where Castlevania is set. This whole story takes place at the foot of the Carpathian Mountains, which you'll recall is where the bad guy from Ghostbusters 2 is from. Vigo, the scourge of Carpathia, the sorrow of Moldavia, command you. This is the region where we get all of our supernatural stories from. If you want a werewolf, or a vampire, or a witch who flies around in a flying mortar and pestle, this is the region where all of that comes from. So pretty much everyone in this entire region is someone that we, today, would consider to be a fucked up psychopath, and these people thought that Elizabeth Bathory was a cruel and freaky kid. That's the kind of bar we're setting. These are the kind of people who would say, you know, I get that you need to impale a motherfucker from time to time, that's just TCB, taking care of business, but that Bathory kid, ooh, she gives me the willies. So, you know, it takes a lot to nudge the needle of creepiness for these people, 
and Lizzie Bathory was doing it on the reg from before she was a teenager. One of the stories I have is that Elizabeth was about 9 or 10 years old, and she was present when the sentence was being executed on a local horse thief. Now, this is not uncommon for the time. Elizabeth's father was the local lord, and the local lord often held court and decided on punishments, and that's what's happening here. It's the same thing as the first episode of Game of Thrones, where they execute the deserter from the Night Watch, but it's supposed to be a solemn occasion, right? The execution of a prisoner, it's supposed to be a certain level of decorum. You're not supposed to enjoy it. Here's what happened. And remember, I've already done the content warning. If you're still here, this is all your fault. There was a horse thief. This is bad news for the horse thief. If history in general frowns on a certain type of criminal, stealing horses is in the top five things you never ever want to be caught doing. Every society in history has always come down hard on horse thieves. They always get the worst treatment. It's just what different societies considered to be the worst thing you could do to a criminal very greatly. And right now, we're in Hungary slash Transylvania, which is not a great place for corporal punishment. In fact, there's another dude from Transylvania who lived about 100 years before this who is kind of famous for the things he did to criminals. It involved sticks in places where sticks shouldn't go. An impaling, if you will. So this horse thief made the mistake of getting caught. Big mistake, and it's going to suck to be him. So Lord Bathory, in his capacity as ruler of the local principality, he hears the case, and he weighs up the evidence, and since the horse thief was poor, he was obviously guilty, and Lord Bathory hands down the punishment. The punishment for stealing a horse in Hungary at the time was that the horse you stole was killed, which sucks for the horse, but that's his fault for getting stolen, isn't it? So the horse is executed for being stolen, and the guy who stole it is in for a very unpleasant afternoon. The horse that was stolen was killed, disemboweled, and then the horse thief, the guy who stole the horse, was hogtied, and then he was shoved inside the hollowed-up corpse of the horse, and then guards sewed the whole thing up again before they took the whole thing outside the gates of the castle and left it for the wolves to eat. So if you stole a horse, you got put inside the horse, and then left for wolves. So the moral of this story is, if you're going to steal horses, don't get caught. And apparently, as the legends go, little Elizabeth Bathory was watching this guy get sewn into the corpse of a horse and listening to his muffled screams as he slowly asphyxiated inside, again for effect, a dead horse! And Lizzie was watching this and laughing and clapping because she thought it was really fun. This is like late 1500s Bluey for the kids, right? Sewing a guy up inside a horse. So we're really flying out of the gates here. What was I laughing at now? Oh yes, that crippled Irishman. (laughs) By the age of 13, Elizabeth had blossomed into a beautiful young woman. Remember, the past was horrible, so 13 is a woman. And so she was engaged in an arranged marriage to a neighbouring prince, one Frank Nadasdi, 
who was actually only two years older than her. Frank Nadazdi, France Nadazdi, Frank. I'm, I'm probably going to abandon trying to keep up with Slavic names pretty soon. Fair warning. There's another legend here. A lot of Elizabeth Bathory's history is very hard to conclusively prove, but there's another story that even though she was wed at the age of 13, she had actually already born a child before this marriage. You can do the math on being wed at 13 but already having had a child, but the past fucking sucks. Apparently, at the age of 11 or 12, Elizabeth had found herself besotted with a local peasant boy, and the two of them did the bone dance on the reg in a local barn. Totally consensual, keep that in mind. This is like a Romeo and Juliet situation. And if this were a Disney movie, it would turn out that the peasant boy was secretly a king the entire time, and they would live happily ever after. But history doesn't work like that. Quite the opposite, actually, because it was terribly unseemly for a child of such noble standing to be bearing a child herself at that age. But far more scandalous was the fact that Elizabeth had lain with a peasant boy. A filthy commoner. Why, that won't do at all. Oh, not at all. So Elizabeth's baby was left out in the cold to die of exposure, she was beaten to make sure that she never spoke of it again, and the peasant boy, who was the father of the child, was hunted down, castrated, and fed to a pack of wild wolves. Again, this is the time and place from where we get all of our Halloween stories. Don't be surprised that it's fucking awful. You roll around in the hay with a noble, you're gonna get your dick ripped off. That's Wallachian rules right there. Uh, tonight you will get your dick ripped off. That doesn't sound right, does it? Is that a prize? So, to move on from the scandalous affair and extrajudicial peasant executions, Elizabeth Bathory was quickly married off to someone of more appropriate breeding, the aforementioned Ferenc Nadazdi, who was also a baron, and they had a grand fairy tale wedding attended by over four and a half thousand people. It was like the Taylor Swift and whoever the current Taylor Swift boyfriend is of its day. It was that big. Elizabeth then moved into her husband's castle in the Carpathian Mountains, and, I assume, they immediately started bickering about where to hang their large collection of haunted paintings of Doug Mulray. Exactly three people will get that joke, and that's fine. They're not all for everyone. But if you got it, well done. Anyway, the couple are now living in what is absolutely a haunted castle built on a hellmouth. It's known as the Castle Kakchis, Castle Chatish, Chakchis, the Castle Chak, Castle Chak. It's known as the Castle Craig, and it looks exactly like you'd imagine a vampire's castle would look like. It is absolutely a vampire castle. If I showed you a photo of this thing, you would go, "Oh, yep, hundred percent." vampires live there. In fact, it was actually where they filmed the movie Nosferatu back in the 20s. That's how vampiric this Castle Craig is. So, aside from how much this castle looks exactly like something from a vampire movie, in fact, it was from a vampire movie, everything else in this story is so same for this period in history. The couple are married, they rule over their lands, they host balls, you know, all of that bullshit aristocrat stuff that they used to do back in the day. But a couple of years later, 
Elizabeth's husband, Ferenc Nadasdi, he gets called up to go and fight the Ottomans. Because this is the late 1500s, people back then fought the Ottomans in the same way that we might go to the shops for milk. That's just how Eastern Europe was in the 16th century. You get up in the morning, you take a shit, you have a shave, and then you go off to sword fight a Turk. That's how it was from this period right up until 1916. That's just how the world has worked for most of its history. You fought the Ottoman Empire. If anything, our world right now is weird for how little we fight the Ottomans. Although, as of recording, Israel is giving it a red-hot crack. He's a topical cyclone. Anyway, Ferenc apparently does quite well in the obligatory Ottoman fighting. It turns out that this Transylvanian noble, who was about 17 at this point, it turns out that this dude is actually a pretty decent fighter and military commander. He's no Hannibal or anything, but he's actually pretty good at it. And this isn't to be taken for granted either, because your rank in the military through most of history was determined by how much of a noble you were, not any actual ability to do the job. And it's so super fucking rare that you get someone who is actually both a high-ranking noble and not a complete fuckwit in battle. Super rare. And Ferenc Nadasdi, he was pretty lethal. He was really good at it. To the point that he eventually earns himself the cognomen, the Black Knight of Hungary. Which isn't ominous at all. Ferenc Nadasdi was known throughout Europe for his peerless skill on the battlefield and for his remarkable cruelty to any prisoners he happened to take. Let that sink in for a moment. This dude was famous for his cruelty. I just explained that sewing a dude into a dead horse was a perfectly normal thing to these people. What does it take to be considered cruel by those standards? Because that's what Ferenc Nadasdi was. Apparently, the Ottomans preferred to commit suicide rather than surrender to Ferenc Nadasdi. So he's a fun guy. And we're spending so much time on this Nimrod because he's a huge catalyst for what's going to come next. So the Hungarians and the Turks are at war, which isn't unusual. But this particular war is known as the Long War, if you want to look it up, even though it isn't a particularly long war for this period in history. But we're not critiquing the Meklature here. This is a show about vampires. Blah, blah, vampire emergency, blah. So because of the Long War, Eastern Europe was feeling the pinch. Their coffers were draining and their economies were ruined by this continuous fighting against the Ottoman Empire, who were one of the better empires in history. As you all know, the Ottoman Empire made it all the way up until World War I, and its collapse directly resulted in the current shitstorm happening in Gaza. So, yeah, they're a big empire. As are the Hungarians at this point. It's a heavyweight battle. You've got Habsburg Hungary up against the Ottoman Empire. This is a clash of superpowers, and that always has huge ripple effects throughout the world. So the entire region is going through some pretty extreme austerity, famine even, but not the spooky castle of doom or its occupant, the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. No, Elizabeth Bathory is riding out this particular economic crisis in style. Opulence, even. 
Because her husband was one of the best warriors in the world, and he was executing Ottomans so often, Elizabeth was receiving a very steady supply of conquered war booty, which kept her in luxury while everyone else around her starved. So she's Marie Antoinetting it centuries before Marie Antoinette. Only instead of let them eat cake, it was more, why doesn't everyone marry a brutal warlord who conquers the Middle East for its fabled wealth? I mean, it works for me, right? Now, initially, Elizabeth Bathory acquitted herself quite well as a ruler. This show is all about how much of a monster she was, and history does indeed remember her as a monster, to the point where our actual monsters are based on her. But at the start, most people didn't know how much of a depraved psychopath she was. At the start, she was actually a pretty good ruler. Since her husband was off committing war crimes in Constantinople, as was the style at the time, It was up to Elizabeth to administer the castle and its surrounds, and by all accounts, her early rule was quite well received. She was generous with her wealth, even lending money to the Habsburg royal family, who were a big deal, and she was known for taking in refugees fleeing the fighting. So while this whole region of the world is going to shit in a handbasket, the domain of Elizabeth Bathory is like a little oasis of calm, measured governance. Or so it would seem. Behind the scenes, though, shit is starting to get super real. Elizabeth Bathory and her husband, Frank Nadasdi, the Black Knight of Hungary, seem to have been genuine soulmates. They were made for each other. And when I say that, I mean that they both seem to have been violent, sadistic, ethically bankrupt sociopaths who got a sexual thrill out of torture. I love you, honey bunny. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks, move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! They are both genuinely fucked up people. And they found each other, which is sweet. The couple very rarely saw each other due to Frank's service in the Long War... But when he was back home on those rare occasions, the couple really made it count. They carved out some time just for them. And when I say carved out, I mean they carved it out of someone's flesh. The two of them bonded over their shared love of torture and violence. Elizabeth had grown up with a love of live-action torture porn, and her husband was the world's most famous war criminal at the time, And when they were together, they let their creativity soar. A large part of their foreplay involved torturing servant girls who had the misfortune of being assigned to the evil spooky castle of doom with all the punctuation. Sometimes it was a simple whipping, other times crossbows were involved, and one of the things that Ferenc Nadasdi taught his wife was the subtle art of taking a piece of oiled up paper, rolling it up into a little stick, putting that in between the toes of a servant girl, setting it on fire, and then they both giggled as they watched her dance. Dance! 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 And if you're thinking this is exactly what Joffrey from Game of Thrones did, that's a bingo! He's absolutely, at least partially, based on Elizabeth Bathory and Ferenc Nadasdi. 
I say partially because the list of fucked up royalty in history is very, very long, and some of them are still on our currency, but that's a previous show you can revisit in your own time. One of Ferenc's anniversary presents to his wife was a glove embedded with small metal teeth, like a glove made of thumbtacks, with which Elizabeth could use to claw off the faces of servants who offended her. Let's let that sink in a little bit. An anniversary present was a bejeweled face remover. And this wasn't a decorative face remover. It's not like China that you put in a cupboard and bring out for special occasions. This thing removed faces on the daily. So obviously, Elizabeth Bathory was a fucked up monster from an early age. The kind of child that giggles as a man is executed inside of a horse. Then, she gets married to one of the sickest people in the world at the time. A guy famous throughout the world for being a sick fuck, and together the two of them bond over their shared love of torture and murder, the way that other couples might have a fondness for a particular song. That's already some messed up shit. But now, I'm going to introduce a witch into the story. Because while we've been hitting a lot of the classic gothic horror tropes, we haven't had an actual witch yet, so here we go. This is when one Anna Davulia enters the scene. Which is a very witchy name now that I say it out loud. Anna Davulia! I am Anna Davulia. There's no evidence that I spoke like the Count, but I totally did! On the surface, Anna Davulia was your standard, run-of-the-mill, middle-aged servant woman. But when she'd heard of the secret escapades of the Count and Countess Bloody, Anna decided that she was well within her wheelhouse, and she set out to advise Elizabeth Bathory in the finer arts of torture. She's like a female Rasputin, long before Rasputin, because this part of the world just loves pumping out fun people who do sick shit. Anna Davulia was, for whatever reason, the 1600s Beethoven of torture. She had a real knack for it. And while I can't give you any real evidence that she was an actual honest-to-God witch, she is categorically a witch. You can believe that. If you go and Google a picture of Anna Davulia, you will say, oh yeah, 100% she is a witch. No doubt. She has that sort of ageless, timeless quality of the Aes Sedai from Wheel of Time, the book, not the TV show that doesn't exist. There's this dark void in her eyes where her soul should be. And she's got a track record for torture in a time where, again for effect, sewing a person inside a horse was a perfectly normal thing. So I'm willing to say that Anna Davulia was 100% either a witch a night hag, a vampire, or some combination thereof. But absolutely a monster. So one day, while Sir Cutzalot, the Black Knight of Hungary, is out murdering Turks in his official capacity as the Butcher of Budapest, the poor Elizabeth Bathory is on her own. She's terribly lonely and longing for the days when she and her husband would quietly curl up in front of a fire and then throw a peasant girl into that fire, and then... Along comes Anna Davulia, an actual witch who says, I can teach you funky new torture techniques. 
How would you like me to come and join your court? And I can't tell you how quickly Lizzie Bathory says, Fuck yeah, welcome to the entourage. And together, they take torture murder into exciting new places. If you're wondering how everyone is getting away with all of this for so long, i.e. the torture and murder of servants, welcome to the feudal system. This is why we need to get rid of monarchies. Counts and countesses could do pretty much whatever the fuck they wanted to back in the day, up to and including sore-style sadistic orgies of pain. And nobody gave a fuck if the victim was not of noble bearing. Oh, you're doing that to peasants? Okay, as you were, carry on. And for our modern society, replace the word nobility with the word corporation, and you can see how we're still in the same boat. What, you think Jeff Bezos never used a face-removing glove? Yeah, right. So now the female version of Rasputin has joined the court. Elizabeth Bathory is going to graduate from your run-of-the-mill nickel-and-dime torture for fun and turn into an outright murderer because that's the way serial killers have always operated. They always escalate. Prior to Anna Davulia turning up, Elizabeth Bathory was more about the pain side of things. Death was an unfortunate side effect of that. Now, under Davulia's tutelage, the murder is the payoff. That's the money shot. There was an unintended consequence of this escalation, though. Torturing your servants is one thing, but murder is another. And if you're thinking we're about to have a moral revelation here, you have absolutely misunderstood the theme of this episode. You see, the thing with torture is, you can keep torturing the same servant over and over again. It sucks for the servant, sure, but it's a renewable resource. But when you escalate from torture to murder, that's when you have a problem. Because now you need to keep finding victims. So now, Elizabeth Bathory, instead of keeping her hobbies in-house in the rather insular community of backwater Hungary, where she will never, ever arouse suspicion because it's the arse end of a Diablo game, now she has to start inviting new victims into her castle to replenish the stocks. Exponential growth is always a problem. Eventually, the sheer number of missing people started to arouse suspicion in the surrounding areas. Everyone in and around the court of Elizabeth Bathory had an idea of what was going on. They all sort of knew. But as long as she was only murdering peasants, the nobles didn't really care. And what are the peasants going to do? Revolt? <laughs> Don't be silly. Why do you think we have a monopoly on violence? It's precisely for this reason. There's a life lesson there. And if you're wondering how people could let all of this happen for so long, remember, Apple factories today have suicide nets. Conditions in these factories are so bad that it became cost-effective to erect infrastructure to catch people and funnel them back into the factory. And we all know this. We know it, and we still use iPhones. So don't judge the past too harshly by the mores of today. But as I said, eventually... Lizzie was torturing so many people for so long that she couldn't contain the rumours anymore. Whenever one of these peasants, and they were nearly exclusively women, whenever one of them died from the treatment of the blood countess, a priest would be summoned to the castle to administer the last rites to the deceased, and this priest eventually started putting things together. 
Apparently, it took a couple of hundred incidents of exactly the same thing happening for this priest to figure out that something was sus, but I can't be too hard on him because he's a priest. This guy believes in an invisible guilt wizard. Critical thinking was never a strong suit of his to begin with, right? So when a servant girl died in the palace, the cause of death was always given as cholera. Oh, this girl died of cholera. And this priest, after the first dozen or so people he interred, the priest began to wonder about things. Doesn't cholera usually come in an outbreak? It's an infectious disease. Why is it only killing one person at a time? And I don't recall any symptoms of cholera being that the tongue was violently ripped out or the toes being burned off. Hmm, something doesn't quite add up here, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Eventually, this priest pulls Elizabeth Bathory aside for a quiet word, and he says to her, You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that you shouldn't torture people to death. The only person who can torture people is God, and people that God has chosen, like Elisha, because there's actually a passage in the real Bible that you can Google right now where God sends bears to slaughter children because they teased a war criminal for being bald. That's a real thing that actually exists. He didn't say those exact words, but you get the idea. The priest says to Lizzie, look, stop murdering people because we can exhume the bodies, and it's going to be pretty obvious that they don't have as many fingers as they should have, so maybe cool it down with the torture murder for a while, or things could get pretty complicated. And Elizabeth's response was pretty much, fuck you, I do what I want, when I want, I'll have my husband do his war crimes on you, and then she stormed out of the church. And apparently nothing came of this particular exchange, it all came out later, because Elizabeth Bathory wasn't caught, and the priest wasn't violently murdered by the Black Knight of Hungary, because apparently even people this savage were still a little bit scared of the Jeebus, even though they were breaking pretty much all of the commandments at least once an hour, but the priest got to live. But that friendly advice about not torturing and murdering people fell by the wayside. Yeah, she ignored that. So the people in the region, they kind of knew what was going on. But what are they going to do about it? A commoner couldn't level a charge against a noble. That was a capital offense in and of itself, so that's not a problem. And the nobles didn't care because it wasn't happening to nobles. It's happening to poor people, and poor people aren't people. And in many cases, because this was a period of economic strife in the region, and because the past was so horrible, there are a lot of accounts of local poor people selling their children to the Bathories because Hansel and Gretel wasn't far removed from the truth. And if you sold your daughter to the local lady and she later died of cholera, well, that's why you had a bunch of children in the first place. So some of them can make it. As ever, history is awful. Eventually, Ferenc Nadasdi, the Black Knight of Hungary, he dead. We don't really know how he dies, but the symptoms sound a lot like polio. Apparently he was in the middle of a battle when he finally died, but he'd been suffering from polio-like symptoms for a couple of years, to the point where people had to carry him into battle so that he might smite more Turks with his sword. This guy is an absolute fucking monster, but if there's one thing I admire, it's commitment to the bit, and being so committed to violent murder that you have leg braces put on you and people carry you into battle... That's really commitment to the bit, so I've got to at least respect it. 
Anyway, Frank Nadasdi dies at the age of 48, and Elizabeth Bathory is utterly devastated. She genuinely loved her husband. She adored him. He was the guy who taught her how to torture people, who brought her all sorts of lovely torture devices as anniversary gifts, and now he's dead? She is genuinely distraught over the loss of her torture buddy. And this sends Elizabeth Bathory off the deep end of crazy. An argument could be made that she was already well over the deep end, but now she is on the far side of crazy. She's a mortal enemy of man. She starts torture murdering people more than ever before because now she has to torture for two people. Her and her deceased husband, Ferenc the Black Knight Nadasdi. It's what he would have wanted, after all. Elizabeth Bathory put up a listing in the local yellow pages asking for any servant girls in the surrounding regions. Hey, who wants a cushy gig at the spookiest castle you've ever seen? Steady pay, good hours, absolutely zero chance that you're going to be horribly murdered. So basically, she just invented Craigslist. And people answered the Craigslist in the hundreds because everyone was dirt poor and handmaidens got paid pretty well. And the word hadn't quite gotten around about all of the murders yet. So Elizabeth had a non-stop stream of young women coming to the castle upon which they were immediately captured and tortured to death. Again, exactly like Craigslist. Whenever one of these servants um, expired, Elizabeth had her corpse thrown over the castle walls for the wolves to feed on, and then another girl was brought in to replace her. It was a goddamn production line. Elizabeth couldn't do all of this on her own, though. If she had a skill outside of torture, it was an uncanny knack for finding people who shared her passion for sadism to help in the torture. We've already met Anna Davulia, who was probably literally Baba Yaga, but there was also her children's nursemaid, Ilona Joe, who played the part of the kindly woman who just wanted to help the new hires find their feet and definitely wasn't planning on murdering, no, she's just your friendly Aunt Ilona Joe. There was the washerwoman, Catalan, who was also in on the action, and you need someone to wash the blood off, after all. And also present was one of Elizabeth's childhood friends, a woman named Dorka. And there was also a disfigured, mentally challenged hunchback, known only as The Kid, because we haven't covered Resident Evil tropes yet, so we might as well chuck that in too. So now there's a freaky hunchback. Like I said, this woman is pretty much the origin of everything spooky today. And one of the fun games that these ladies and one creepy hunchback used to play was called Who Can Inflict the Most Pain on a Person Before They Die? And everyone would try to outdo each other. They had scoreboards with things like How many needles can we put under someone's fingernails before they pass out? I'm not doing a bit about the scoreboard thing, that actually happened. Boom shakalaka! Now, what would happen would be that a new servant girl would be brought into the castle, and one of the underlings would show the new girl her duties. Then, when she inevitably made a mistake, because it was her first day, that was seen as an opportunity to punish the poor girl, which, at first, was being stripped naked and whipped, same as at an Amazon fulfillment center, but if she made a second infraction, or if the Countess Elizabeth was actually present in the room to witness the infraction, that's when they'd break out the big guns. For instance, 
If the girl made a mistake while sewing, the punishment was to have sewing needles stabbed into her fingers. Elizabeth herself would usually do this, and she'd push the needles in very, very slowly. And when the girl screamed, Elizabeth would then say, quote, If it hurts the whore, she can pull the needle out. And then, when the girl started to extract the needle which was deeply embedded in her finger, Elizabeth would then cut the whole finger off. Which I guess does remove the needle. She's technically correct. And most servants in the palace were missing a few fingers. A third infraction, three strikes, and you got sent off to the torture chambers, from which nobody ever came out alive. Whatever medieval torture you're thinking of here, you are absolutely correct. They had the full bingo card going. There's a very common misconception around this story, one of the myths of history, that Elizabeth Bathory liked to have the blood drained out of virgins so that she could bathe in it. And that's pretty much a certain fabrication after the fact. She never bathed in blood. Elizabeth usually came out covered in other people's blood, sure, but she didn't have blood baths like in Blade. That's just a waste of a live person that you can torture. It was an unfortunate side effect, not the main event. Exsanguination was what happened after you had your fun, not the original goal. So the idea that Elizabeth Bathory bathed in blood was a fabrication well after the events took place. That's one thing that we can say didn't happen, but all of the other shit, yeah, she kind of did that. I'm going to be naughty. I'm going to be a naughty vampire god. (laughs) Whatever horrible thing you're thinking of, yep, she did it. Eventually, there were so many murders happening that Elizabeth's inner circle were running out of places to store the bodies. I mean, we've all done it, haven't we? Don't you hate it when your corpse hatch gets clogged with corpses? We've all done it. Yeah, you can't fit another corpse in your corpse hatch. We've all done it. I'm pretty sure that is an actual Michael McIntyre routine. So the Castle Craig is having a problem. They'd run out of dirt to bury people in. The wolves were so full that they couldn't eat another bite. Body disposal was becoming a bit of a problem. A lot of people would have taken this as a sign to rein it in. But not our Lizzie. Oh no. Just chalk it up to another cholera epidemic. Force majeure. Nothing to see here. Until, in 1609, Elizabeth's closest friend, Anna Davulia, who is totally a witch, dies of a stroke. Which one might take as a sign that God had struck her down for her evil deeds, especially in this superstitious day and age, but one of the constants of religion is that signs from God are only ever exactly what you want them to be, so apparently Anna Davulia's stroke was put down to the fact that she hit her inbuilt kill limit and shut down permanently. At about the same time, the kingdom's debts are starting to rack up, because Elizabeth Bathory is literally importing people to murder them, and that costs a lot of money. Also, the actual administration of the castle is going to shit, because Elizabeth isn't actually ruling it anymore because of all the murdering she's doing, and nobody is working in the castle because they're all being murdered. See, nobody ever thinks about the administrative flow-on effects when they start their murder spree, but it's important to keep in mind. But, most importantly, Elizabeth Bathory is starting to feel the loneliness of an empty nest. At this point in her life, all of her five children had grown, married, and left the castle. 
On top of this, her husband had died years ago, so she's gone into full spinster mode, and she goes even crazier. Yes, it is possible. Whereas a lot of women might become a crazy cat lady, Elizabeth Bathory leans even more heavily into her only hobby. And this is where she starts to fuck up. No, if you were thinking that she'd already fucked up when she started agonizingly torturing hundreds of peasant girls to death over the course of a few decades, no, that was not a problem in that day and age. It's a weird hobby, sure, but nobles could do whatever the fuck they wanted, just as long as they did it to poor people because fuck poor people for being poor. Elizabeth Bathory was a Tory through and through. I was born a vampire as was every other member of this house. But you, Frost, you were merely turned. And this is where Elizabeth Bathory finally fucks up. In her madness, she decides to taste the forbidden fruit. She decides that she needs a better class of victim. She starts to feed on the nobility. She immediately opens up a finishing school for young noblewomen, Elizabeth Bathory's School of Deportment and Etiquette, where young women could learn all of the courtly graces before they were horribly murdered by a crazy person. That last sentence wasn't in the brochure, of course. And when you look at it, you can see where Lizzie is coming from. She's in debt, she needs a quick injection of cash, she also needs fresh bodies and nobles were willing to pay top dollar to have their daughters educated by one of the noblest nobles who ever nobled, the Countess Elizabeth Bathory. This is an unbelievable level of prestige. The great Countess Elizabeth Bathory teaching your child? That's incredible. So nobles are falling over themselves to sign their daughters up to the Sweeney Todd boarding school for murder, and Lizzie has a never-ending stream of new victims. This plan is bulletproof, right? And you can see her spiral here, because at no point did Elizabeth consider that nobles, people of her own station and wealth, nobles had the money and resources and, most of all, inclination to find out why their daughters suddenly stopped writing home. These nobles, upset over said missing daughters, appealed directly to the king of Hungary, Matthias II. And because they were all nobles, they're all cousins of the king, they can actually get shit done. Nobody's going to listen when a peasant is asking where his daughter is, but when one of the king's cousins asks the same question, wheels get put into motion. They said to the king, hey, we've all sent our daughters to the Bathory School of Non-Murdering Nothing to See Here, and now they've gone missing. The letters home abruptly stopped as soon as they arrived at the school. And the king says, yes, that is indeed quite the pickle. I'll have somebody look into this immediately. So a constable arrives at Elizabeth's door and asks what has happened to all of the noblewomen. And Elizabeth Bathory, who we can all agree at this stage is deeply fucking insane, she says this. She says, Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot to report that. Ah yeah, funny thing happened. There was a bunch of murders here and now all of the women are dead. It wasn't me, though. I didn't do the murdering. I need to be 100% clear about that. It was 100% not me that did the murdering. You see, what happened was, and you're not going to believe this, but this is what happened. 
One of the girls here was actually a bit of a nutter, and she went crazy, and she stabbed all of the other girls to death in their sleep before, conflicted by the guilt of what she'd done, she turned the knife on herself. That's what happened. Tragic, yes? I just didn't report it because reasons. And that's honestly what she said. I've worded it slightly differently, of course, but that's the thrust of Elizabeth's defense. One of the girls that she was teaching went crazy, killed all of the other girls, and then killed herself. And we were absolutely going to report this to the king, but we kind of forgot. Oopsies. Uh-oh, spaghettios. Naturally, the king's hand in this situation, the constable, a guy by the name of Gyogi Thurzo, and Gyogi Thurzo happened to be a noble of equivalent rank and actually a close personal friend of the late Black Knight of Hungary, this Thurzo dude thought that this excuse was a bit weak, and he decided to go looking into it a bit further. He didn't take it at face value, which props to him. So this dude, who I'm calling a constable for ease of narrative, there wasn't actually a police force, it was just a high-ranking noble that the king told to investigate this shit, but as far as we're concerned, he's a constable, he starts investigating the disappearances of these women, and shit is starting to look really sketchy. Not only was Elizabeth Bathory's excuse as to what happened incredibly lame and sounded like she came up with it on the spot, the whole castle had the kind of vibe you get where hundreds of people are brutally murdered there. There was some seriously bad mojo in the air. So Thurzo starts investigating further, and he starts interviewing people who worked in the castle. None of them were willing to talk. Like they were all scared of something. So he managed to talk to some of them privately. And through them, he managed to find a select few people who had managed to escape the castle. And the tales that they told him of what was going on in that place, well, they gave him the willies. They're the same tales I just told you, so you can see how he might feel about being told that this is the largest scale murder spree since Genghis Khan. Blood-soaked halls, constant screams, a cemetery in the backyard that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Why, if I didn't know any better, this is starting to sound like a vampire castle. My own brother, a goddamn shit-sucking vampire. Oh, you wait till mom finds out, buddy. But the problem was that none of this actually counted as evidence. At least not so far as these things counted back in the 1600s. Nobody had ever actually seen any of these events taking place. Everything was a second-hand account, because all of the first-hand accounts had been tortured and murdered. But none of it was admissible as evidence, primarily because peasants weren't allowed to give evidence. They weren't even really considered people. But still, this is a mountain of circumstantial evidence. Georgi Thurzo is starting to think that Elizabeth Bathory might be the biggest serial killer in the history of mankind. But there's a problem. Because Gyogi Thurzo was best friends with Elizabeth's husband, the late Ferenc the Black Knight Nadasdi. He and Gyogi were very, very close friends, to the point where, as Ferenc was dying, he made Gyogi promise to look after his widow. They were that kind of close. Captain, if your mother saw you do that, she'd be very upset. I thought you were my mother. And now... Gyorgi has discovered that the widow he'd sworn to his dying best friend that he would protect with his life? She's literally the fucking devil. He's in quite the pickle. So here's what he did. He wrote to Elizabeth's family asking for advice. 
which is absolutely what you should always do when you're on a murder investigation, right? Ask the murderer's family what they think you should do. Just pen them a letter saying, oh, hi, it's Georgi. How's everything going? How are the kids? Oh, they'd be starting high school about now, wouldn't they? Oh, they grow up so fast. Oh, yeah, also, I think your daughter has killed a thousand people. How should we go about broaching this subject? Also, how is the dog? Did he get over that thing? Lots of love, your friend, Georgi. But that's what happened. And after a bit of back and forth, it was agreed by the Bathory family at large that Elizabeth should be sent directly to prison without trial to save everyone involved the shame of a public trial and sentencing and to protect the Bathory family name, which was obviously very prestigious. That's what this investigator and Elizabeth's own family decided to do, very quickly. Note that at no point did anybody in Elizabeth Bathory's own family say anything to the effect of, what do you mean she's killed more people than cancer? No, none of them were surprised. It was just, oh yeah, you finally caught her. Okay, here's a protocol that we had ready to go for this eventuality. Operation Stop the Murders is go. Still, Georgi Thurzo was an honorable man and he wasn't entirely convinced. So he had events arranged that he, in his capacity as an equally high-ranking noble, he would dine with the Lady Bathory in her castle. Nothing sus there, this is what nobles do. Nothing arouses suspicion about that. They all have balls together, it's what they do. So he's sitting at the table, waiting for dinner, and he sees that Elizabeth, as the host, she's putting on a brave face as the doting, charming lady of the house, the host of this banquet, but she seems to be incredibly nervous, especially as dessert was being served. And upon taking his first bite of cake, Thurzo began to feel incredibly ill, sharp pains in his stomach, and he politely excused himself from the table, stating that he had taken ill and he must retire post-haste. In fact, he suspected that he'd been poisoned, and I think that is a pretty fair suspicion. But still, Thurzo was a trusting chap, and in my estimation a bit dim, and attempted murder still wasn't enough to convince him that Elizabeth Bathory was a monster. He needed harder evidence still. So a couple of weeks later... On New Year's Eve, 1610, he returned to Bathory's castle in the dead of night with a contingent of soldiers at his back. And they hid outside the gates of the castle and waited. Sometime around midnight, Elizabeth Bathory opens up the gates of the castle, walks out into the light of the full moon, and begins to cast a spell. Yes, a motherfucking magic spell under the light of the full moon, because the story hasn't had that yet, and we've got to hit all of the tropes. This all happened, by the way. This is all real. I'm not making these parts up. It just happens to hit all of the tropes. If it were fiction, they wouldn't let you do it, because it's too on the nose. But that's the glory of history. We can just go all in, and in this story, it went all in. So Elizabeth is casting a spell that would protect her and the castle from those that would do her harm, and she also begins casting another spell that would bring doom to the man investigating her, one Georgi Thurzo. Yet she's casting a death note on him, a guy, I need to reiterate, who is a close personal friend of hers. And apparently this was enough for Thurzo. 
Attempts to poison him are one thing, you can forgive that, but personalized, bespoke death magic is another thing entirely. As Elizabeth finishes her incantation and goes back inside, he and his men quietly follow behind. They enter the castle, and they don't even make it through the door before they find their first corpse. Then a second, and a third, and most of a fourth. They're actually going to have a hard time putting the victims back together again. They continue down the hallway, and they find themselves at the threshold of the torture chamber. The screams had been echoing in their ears long before that, though. And as they opened the door, they saw Bathory's friends and stewards torturing a naked woman. It is unclear whether Elizabeth herself was participating or merely watching, but at that point, it was academic. We're shutting this place down. The soldiers overpowered all of them, and they were thrown into their own dungeon. Elizabeth Bathory immediately began protesting her innocence, blaming it all on her servants. Nobody was convinced. It's kind of hard to pretend that you didn't know about the torture basement when you were arrested inside the torture basement. Elizabeth's coterie of murderers in turn implicated Elizabeth, even though it meant that they were signing their own death warrants by admitting to the murders. So there is no honor among thieves, as it were. In the days and weeks that followed, 306 people testified against Elizabeth Bathory, including those closest to her, the people arrested alongside of her. They all turned. This whole operation was, quite clearly, Elizabeth Bathory's idea. Nobody could quite figure out just how many people Elizabeth Bathory had murdered. The lowest possible number was 80 although estimates came in at around 650 people. 650 people. 650. Take a standard city passenger train, pack it full of people like it's a Japanese subway, and that's how many people Elizabeth Bathory personally tortured to death. Harold Shipman, the famous Dr. Death, came in at 218. Elizabeth Bathory has triple that. The Whitechapel murderer, Jack the Ripper, the most famous historical serial killer of them all, has five proven victims. Five. Bathory, again, has 80 that we can conclusively prove, and up to 650. She is the goat. Bathory's accomplices were all tried and convicted. All of them save one were themselves tortured to death, which was hardly unusual for the time. This was a time and place where you could be tortured to death for disagreeing about how many baptisms a person could have, and eye-for-an-eye torture execution, that was especially common. The women were torn apart with red-hot tongs. Again, not unusual, very common practice, and they had their body parts burned in front of them. Again, not unusual. In case you're wondering, this whole process takes about 12 hours from start to finish. Which, debate amongst yourselves the merits of capital punishment, but these people did torture to death 650 women, so there is that. I'm not saying it's justified, but if it ever was, maybe it's here. The mentally challenged hunchback was deemed to be incompetent to stand trial, so they just beheaded him. Which, believe me, that's getting off light in those days. 
And this is absolutely another one of those sentences I never thought I'd be saying back in high school career day. The mentally challenged hunchback was merely beheaded. As for Elizabeth Bathory herself, Thurzo was true to his word. She never stood trial. She was immediately thrown into prison for the rest of her life, never to see freedom again. In some lovely historical irony, she was incarcerated in her own dungeon. Not once did she ever acknowledge her crimes. Her days were spent raving and raging about how anyone would dare throw her into prison. She was a countess, after all. It was her divine right to torture and murder as many people as she damn well pleased. She never repented. Not once. At one point, Georgi Thurzo came to visit her, out of duty for the promise that he'd made to her husband. Elizabeth Bathory spat on him, blaming him for her downfall. Thurzo's reply was, and I'm quoting here, You, Elizabeth, are a wild animal. You are in the last months of your life. You do not deserve to breathe the air on the earth or to see the light of the Lord. You shall disappear from this world and shall never reappear in it again. As the shadows envelop you, may you find time to repent your bestial life. End quote. And that is pretty badass. And with that, he walked away. He did not visit her again. Elizabeth Bathory spent the next four years confined in her own dungeon. Her only visitors, priests, who, vainly, attempted to get her to see her crimes for what they were. But she never once backed down. On the 21st of August, 1614, she complained to her guard that her hands felt cold. The guard told her that she was merely tired and she should try going to sleep. She did. And she never woke again. Elizabeth Bathory's body was buried in the local cemetery, but it didn't stay there long. The locals weren't too impressed at having such a monster interred in their city, and they immediately attempted to desecrate the grave. And I don't blame them. She was indeed a monster and deserved no rest. I plan to do the same thing to John Howard's grave if he ever dies. So Bathory's body was exhumed and placed in the Bathory family crypt. The entire Bathory family were against this, of course, that's why she wasn't put there in the first place, but the needs of the many and all that. So she was finally interred in the crypt of her ancestors. And in 1995, nearly 400 years later, a team of archaeologists opened up the Bathory family tomb, hoping to learn more about the woman who history had come to know as the Blood Countess of Hungary. And when they opened up the grave of Elizabeth Bathory, the body was nowhere to be found. Yep, one last trope, and it's all real. Happy Halloween, everyone. Enjoy your new knowledge that there is a strong chance that Elizabeth Bathory is still out there. The gates of heaven and hell both eternally closed to her, cursed to wander the earth for eternity, subsisting on the suffering of mortals. Sweet dreams, Liebchen. I've recently been made aware that apparently Elizabeth Bathory is a character in the latest series of Castlevania on Netflix, which I haven't seen yet because I'm not up to it, but I do recommend the show as a whole. I tend to watch it while I'm at the gym. This isn't a sponsored promo or anything, I just started watching Castlevania and... While I wouldn't say it's particularly great, it is certainly not terrible and it's that perfect Goldilocks zone for something that you can watch while you're working out. So yeah, check out Castlevania.
And for a show that is about vampires and the supernatural, it's actually weird how little they would need to change the real Elizabeth Bathory to make it fit. She's pretty damn close as it is. She pops up in quite a few places alongside much more well-known supernatural figures like Dracula and, and Spring Hill Jack. That's the kind of company she's in. Uh, she's one of the characters in the classic board game Atmosphere, and that's Atmosphere with an F instead of a PH in case you haven't clued into the pun. And if you haven't played Atmosphere, you are obviously not a millennial. So now you might know why that game had people like Baron Samdi, Medusa, and some random Hungarian chick as the vampire. Elizabeth Bathory. That's why she's in there. Uh, seriously, go play Atmosphere. It's a straight shot of nostalgia and tis the season for it, after all. Speaking of vampires, as we've established, there is nothing to suggest that Elizabeth Bathory actually was a vampire. She didn't drink blood or bathe in it, contrary to the rumors. That all came out later. She was just a normal, run-of-the-mill human monster. Remember, the real monster is always man. Or woman. Ladies, you need to respect this queen who has been at the top of the pops for centuries. But she was definitely not a vampire. We don't know what happened to the corpse, obviously, but a lot of things can happen to corpses. It just flows really well with the story. That being said, she is absolutely vampiric when you think about it. She ticks every vampire cliché box long before there were vampire cliché boxes to tick. That's why she's in Castlevania. Uh, there's no direct evidence to suggest that Bram Stoker took notes from Elizabeth Bathory when he was writing the classic novel Dracula, which obviously centers around the historical figure of Vlad Dracula to Pesh. There's nothing in Stoker's notes about Bathory, but there is just way too much crossover there for it not to have been in the back of his mind as he was writing it. So there's no way to assert that or cite it, but I personally am convinced that Elizabeth Bathory was at least partially responsible for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And for those of you who have been asking when I'm going to do a show about Elizabeth Bathory, there you go. We just did. Until next time, boils and ghouls. <laughs> Open the lid and shook his fist and said... Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the man. It's now the monster man. The monster man.